Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I'm delighted to have Ali Patterson, who is Editor-in-Chief of Fintech Finance, as my guest, as a little bit of a departure from our normal fare. Ali, would you mind giving 90 seconds on your background and tell us a little bit about what you do? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, my, my background is film production. So obviously, I you know, the next stage is to get into, into fintech. <laughs> my um, job is, is brilliant. I travel virtually at the moment around the world, and I speak to people who are just the smartest when it comes to anything, fintech payment, banking, financial services, insurance, insurtech. And it, it's an absolute blast because you, you spend one minute hearing about a insurance company that has a six second payout and then the next thing you're speaking to someone about uh, about bitcoin and blockchain a lot of cluster a lot of fluster a lot of innovation theater but then between all that i end up speaking to some absolute gold nuggets of things that you take a step back and think this actually could change the world and not in a not in a hbo silicon valley kind of way like actually this is this is what a lot of the world needs right now so a lot of magazine, a lot of filming. That's just in, in an absolute nutshell. Excellent. Thank you for that. Well, let's start with defining what is fintech. That's my number one question, I guess. <laughs> fintech is a term that gets bounded around quite a bit. Monzo gets described as a fintech. Monzo's not a fintech, it's a bank. For me, a fintech is any company that is trying to make that is behind the technology on financial services in an absolute nutshell. The examples I always give to people is uh, there's a great company called Curve or K Wearables now. It's a ring and, it, and they make the technology behind that ring. And that is a good tangible example to explain to people what fintech is. It's a company that makes the technology behind that or a company that makes ATMs. That's kind of the, the kickoff part. And then there's a lot more to it with APIs and open banking and the back end and core systems, all that kind of fun stuff. Excellent. Okay, well, let's dig into what is blockchain, first of all. Blockchain is, I'm going to recommend something for anyone who wants to get a really solid understanding of blockchain. Go to Netflix. There's a great series on there called Explained. And it has things like K-pop explained. I knew nothing about K-pop. It's got pirates explained. And it's got a thing on there called cryptocurrencies explained. And that, in an absolute 15 minutes, gives a bulletproof explanation and understanding of what blockchain is. I'm probably going to muck this up. But with blockchain, it, the actual definition of what blockchain is doesn't really matter. What, what matters is what it can do, what it does. And blockchain... I'm really nervous now because I'm going to have a lot of people message me say, oh, you've mucked this up. Blockchain is data that you can't, is irrefutable. It's copied on so many modules and so many blocks that you can't go and say, oh, you can't go have one person go and change it. I.e. it's a solution to the Byzantine general. You've got to watch the thing. Basically, it's data that you can't edit, you can't change without going back and doing far too much work that it's not, it's not worth it, which means for things like digital money, it's an irrefutable record of that. So it makes the data reliable and entirely dependable because no one can defraud it without incurring way too much expense and it wouldn't be worthwhile. Exactly, yes. That's what it can do in a nutshell. But then the implications of that 
are flipping huge with things like verifying data, with things like with things like money, with things like a trade ledger, with things like with things like cryptocurrencies. The knock-on effect of it could be absolutely huge. Imagine our NHS records all on a blockchain. It'd be brilliant. So let me ask you this, because obviously a lot of people are hearing about cryptocurrencies, in particular Bitcoin. What is a cryptocurrency and why should people even consider investing in them? Decentralized uh, currency. I think decentralization is happening across the world in every single industry. Airbnb is a in many ways, a decentralized hotel chain. Uh, exactly the same with money, exactly the same with Bitcoin. There is a bit large potential for fraud. Bitcoin itself, I think, is established enough now that it is it's kind of you know relatively fraud free. I.e., you're not going to suddenly, it's not going to suddenly disappear. Unlike other coins like the A coin or the God, there's been a few, a, a few, the, the, the coin yay, the Kanye West coin. A lot of those have kind of sort of fallen by the wayside. Yeah, yeah, uh, have fallen by the wayside. But then, I mean, Bitcoin is going to be around for the foreseeable future. I see a lot of the mainstream banks now trying to jump on the bandwagon with crypto, whilst governments are very nervous of it and the banks are naturally very nervous of it as well. Why should we trust the bank's cryptocurrencies, or should we? (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I didn't mean to put you on the spot. The bank's cryptocurrencies, it feels a little bit like innovation theatre. It feels a little bit like, oh, cryptocurrency, that's a hot word. Let's show that we're being innovative. There are some exceptions out there that I think, uh, and there's a lot of interesting stuff happening in Dubai that I'm quite excited about. Got to reference another video here. Go on the old YouTube there is a fantastic rap battle between Alexander Hamilton and uh, Santoshi. Of, and that is the war, if you like, between fiat currencies, pound, sterling, dollar, and the likes of crypto. And it kind of explains the ethos behind that. And it, it is literally, who do you trust? You know, With cryptocurrencies, you don't need to trust them. I'm, I'm going to maybe even quote one of the lines. You don't need to trust the people. You just need to trust the code. Whereas on the other side, you've then got centralized currencies, which is backed by government. So there's a slight a bit of decentralization around there, a slight kind of rebellious uh, streak to it. But no, I think a lot of the banks, to answer your question, I think a lot of the bank stuff is, is innovation theater. Okay. Again, that honestly doesn't surprise me. Tell me this then. How can fintech save the world? You, you've used that phrase Given the economic depression we're about to go into, what can fintech do to mitigate some of that threat? It's very, very easy inside the M25 to forget that outside the M25, a lot of people still rely purely on cash. A lot of people don't have bank accounts or don't even use bank accounts. And then as soon as you leave the West, when you head to sub-Saharan Africa, you suddenly see all of these people, Nigeria, for example, there's over 100 million people without a bank account, but they have a phone. For me, the birth of modern fintech was Kenya with M-Pesa. I don't know if you know seen much about M-Pesa, but it's incredible. Tell us about it. M-Pesa is a simple way to top up credit onto your phone and then transfer that credit to someone else. And overnight, pretty much, it was never intended to be, but it pretty much became the biggest bank in Kenya in terms of people using it to transact because you didn't need a license. You could just send money to send phone credit to anyone with a a phone, anyone with a number. 
So anyone can make uh, mobile micropayments over their phone. Exactly. And all of a sudden, you then had transactions. And if you have transactions that are recorded digitally, you then have a record that you can then use to build up credit. You can see someone's getting money in every single week or day. You then go, do you know what? Yes, I will advance you this money because I can see that money is going to come in. So it lowers the risk. And that then moves the economy forward. And if you look at areas such as uh, such as Brazil, for example, there's a new bank, which arguably is the most impressive neo bank out there, over 10 million customers, because it was super simple to onboard, super simple for people to understand it. And all of a sudden, all the people that were purely using cash are now using new bank. All the people in China that used to use cash are using Alipay. All the people in in Kenya were using Impesa. So in certain markets like Nigeria, there's a huge opportunity for fintech to come in and completely transform not just the individual lives of people there, but the country as a whole. I mean, can you imagine China without electronic payments now? And bear in mind, you know, 1990, not, not a thing. Fast forward 30 years, it's completely changed the economy. So tell me this then, in terms of the cyber risk, around electronic banking and these kinds of neobanks. How are those organizations protecting against fraud, phishing, those kind of activities? For me, that's not a particularly large, large issue compared to any other banks. They're protecting in the same way that some of the larger banks are, but they don't have 50 plus years of legacy systems to protect. They've only got a few more modern ones that are prepared for for today. That doesn't mean that they're not, but yeah, it's it's the same risks. So let's flip the question over the other way. What are the risks that traditional banks with 50 years of legacy systems are carrying that people should be concerned about? That a certain, for example, a certain bank in London still relies on floppy disks. And by floppy disks, I'm, I don't mean your three and a half ones. I mean your five and a quarters. Oh, wow. It just blows my mind. Um, and the risk that those guys are facing is you don't want the current system that has, for all most cases, worked for the last 50 odd years. You don't want to get rid of something if it ain't broke. Don't fix it. But at the same time, they also have to be future-proofed and be prepared for the well, prepared for what's going to be coming over the horizon. And then how to do that is, is, is that's the tricky way. And So if we look at the future of finance, if you were to look into your crystal ball, because you've probably got a, a better view of what's coming down the pipe, how do you see the way we transact and we relate to money changing? I ask this question to so many people, and the answers I get back are always either very kind of neutral or go for the moon. I like to compare banking and finance to various other industries. And if you look at, say, the music industry, you have your records, your CDs, your physical distributions. And that is the incumbent banks today. I also firmly see the Monzos and Starlings and Revoluts who are doing a fantastic job. They're still iTunes, though. That, that's still the iTunes of today. What I want to see, I, I want to see Spotify. And the only organization out there that I always talk about because 
I think they're great. They're still not there yet, but I can see them being there, is Curve, which is all of your cards in one. Only reason I highlight them is I don't even, when I make a transaction, I have got no clue. I don't think this is coming out of my nationwide credit card. This is coming out of my, not Amex, but this is coming out of the business account. I don't even think about it. I just put it on my Curve card, and then I've got uh, 90 days to choose which account it comes out of. So it's starting to get there to the point where you're not even where banks are becoming a bit of a utility in the, in the same way to the, uh, uh, to the music industry. So I think it's going to be going the way of, uh, of Spotify. And that's what if banks today want to be forward-looking, they've got to think how to become a Spotify, not just a digital version of what they currently have, but to be something that is truly, truly digital as opposed to digitized. You see this between the old brick-and-mortar retailers who then added on online shopping and it was like the Frankenstein bolt-on whereas you saw Ocado which started out as a uh, an online grocer and the experience people have of uh, Ocado you know the substitutions are always good the service is you know second to none whereas if you're going to Tesco or whoever not singling them out but the substitutions are it's the stuff that's just about to go out of date. The substitutions aren't great and the experience isn't you know, stellar. And I, I think we, what we need to be aware of is that whilst we're not familiar with a lot of these brands, we should be educating ourselves. Where can one get the education around the changing face of uh, money? little plug so you know you can go to fintech.finance got a lot of kind of news news on there so uh, a plug alert Um, I kind of set you up for that didn't I (laughs) (laughs) yes but also people trust that you can read lots of things but are you gonna are you gonna really trust that ask your nephew what bank are you using because they're likely to be younger than you and probably more forward thinking. So ask your friends, ask your family, oh, what bank are you using? We've got a weird thing in this country. We don't really like to kind of talk about that. And then if it's someone that you haven't heard of before, then sign up for an account. I've got a policy where if I haven't heard of the bank, I've got to open an account with them, which is why my, uh, not sure what the old details, but this is uh, one of my wallets full of different cards because I like to play around with them. And uh, so I, I would say, to find out more about them, the sources out there are endless, but it's more about the attitude of being inquisitive of, huh, why should I always go with this one just because I've been with them for 15 years? I think when it comes to money, people go with what's familiar, which they think makes it safe. But I think the last financial crash gives us a good indication that the traditional banks probably aren't necessarily uh, as safe as we uh, like them to be. How can we assess whether or not um, our money is going to be safe within any given account? And uh, what sort of kind of due diligence should we be doing uh, before we uh, put large amounts of money in? Opening an account is one thing, but then putting your life savings into an account uh, is another. So what advice would you give there? If it's less than £85,000, and they have a banking license or it's stored via someone with a banking license, then even if that bank crashes, it is protected. Well, 85. Yeah. If you have 10 times that amount, 
just have 10 bank accounts. That makes sense. That, that's okay. the, it's quite tricky to, uh, it's not, you know, a fair play to the FCA and, and the UK government. We've actually, we're, we're quite secure in this in the UK in terms of if the banking system and bust, a lot of people's money is going to be protected. So what are the four most common questions that people ask you around fintech? The big one I always get is, what is, what is fintech? But I think we kind of uh, uh, covered that one there. One that I've actually been asked a few times by, by my immediate family is, have you heard of a thing called Bitcoin? I've had that a, a fair few times, which, yeah, yes, I have. That's always uh, an amusing one, but it, it always blows my mind, the amount of people that my gran has asked me that question. That's uh, probably one of the big ones, uh, the big ones that we get. In terms of during interviews when I'm speaking to kind of people all, all, all around the world, the biggest question that I always ask and they always ask me back is, what is the biggest challenge in financial services? That's probably the most sought after answer, because if you understand the challenge, you can then understand ah, how to solve it. It's always the same answer, though. It's, um, it's legacy. Everything comes down to legacy, legacy and culture. Everything comes down to legacy and culture, because if you can solve that, then bravo, you know, you're set up for life. So if someone wanted to get involved with Bitcoin, I mean, I'm constantly being approached on LinkedIn by yet another crypto trader, and they make claims like we can guarantee an 87% return. Of course they can. Of course they can. You know, it's guaranteed. But then the next stage appears that you have to do all the work. So my question there is, if you're even contemplating getting involved in Bitcoin, what advice would you give to people? Speak to people that you know and trust that are already using it and see what they're using. Go in a little, don't go in a lot. I made a point of, I said, look, we'll accept any kind of, uh, if, the amount of people that have come to us and said, oh, would you mind if we, would, you, would we be able to pay you in, uh, in our own cryptocurrency? And it's been to varying effect. We had one cryptocurrency that suddenly spiked and we were like, oh my God, we're getting eight times the amount than we're expecting. But we were locked in until a certain date and you better believe it fell like an absolute stone before we were able to cash out. A lesson learned there. And we had another one that was actually a, a stable coin. And that was a very strange user interface that actually resulted when we tried to transfer it uh, out it was actually it's gone forever which is so take it slowly bitcoin is going to be around and it's very easy to get greedy and think oh my god we need to get in on bitcoin right away so i'd say take it slowly and go in a little always do like a pilot a pilot payment first to make sure yep i've got this kind of infrastructure down that's what i would uh, i would i would recommend but also bitcoin as a community is insane we do a thing called the payments race, which we can't really do at the moment because they would be the ultimate super spreaders. A group of people. What do you mean by a super spreader? They would spread the virus uh, all over the world right now. They would struggle. A group of people, they've got to get from one city to another. Uh, last year, we did London, around the world to Amsterdam. Can't really do it at the moment. But the catch is that they uh, they could only use one type of payment. So... One person can only use cash, one person can only use card, one person can only use mobile. And we had, uh, if you're familiar with the reality TV show, The Circle, 
it's like Big Brother for with social media. Right. We had the winner of that uh, very funny guy called Alex, and he knew nothing about Bitcoin. And uh, met him in London, started in Trafalgar Square. Here you are, Alex. Here's £4,000 in Bitcoin. You've got to get all the way around the world to Amsterdam using only Bitcoin. He had no connections there. And it was insane the amount of people that helped him out who he had absolutely no idea who they were beforehand because the, the Bitcoin community is all over the world and they will help anyone with Bitcoin. They're invested to make sure Bitcoin is the future and they, they absolutely get on board. He had someone drive him the length of Ireland. It, it's crazy. <laughs> so if you're going to get involved in Bitcoin, get involved in the community because it, it's a great community. And so what, what is Bitcoin mining? Bitcoin mining, again, you've got to watch the Netflix explain. There was a great, the great uh, halving happened uh, a few weeks ago is how Bitcoin is created, an exchange of computing power and internet power. And it's, for, again, I've got to muck this up a little bit. It's how the ledger is actually created. So there's thousands of miners, hundreds of thousands of miners all over the world who are actually keeping that ledger intact, who are building that ledger, who are making sure there's multiple irrefutable ledger. And mining is effectively creating that. And by giving your power, giving your computer, giving your internet speeds, et cetera, you are rewarded for that with a payout of some of the actual cryptocurrency itself. But the great halving, the great halving, I don't even know that's the official term, but there was a halving, so you get half as much Bitcoin for your buck a few weeks ago because it's designed that there'll only be a finite amount of Bitcoins. So there are a finite number of Bitcoins, and when it reaches a certain level of valuation, then effectively they split it. So you've got the same number of Bitcoins, but it can carry on trading so it doesn't end up coming to a grinding halt. No, it's okay. the amount that you get that you get for your mining is actually halved, but it still maintains that there is a finite amount. So it's happened, I think, twice before in the past. Right. Bitcoin then become effectively halved in value. The amount that you get for mining halves in value. Right. Okay. So if you have, say, one computer working flat out for a day and you get, for argument's sake, one Bitcoin, after the halving happened... The same computer works flat out for the day, you'll get half a Bitcoin. Right. Okay. And that's presumably banking on Bitcoin rising in value. Yeah. Right. Okay. And when that happens, what happens to the value of Bitcoin? Presumably. Nobody really knew. And there was a lot of speculation each way. It did what Bitcoin always does, which is it went up and down. It fluctuates quite a lot. Okay. So what are the three questions people should ask about fintech, but they don't? What is the long-term revenue model? That, people don't like to ask that. Again, I love Monzo. I do not know, and I really hope there is one. I do not know what the long-term goal is. Same with Revolut. I do not know what the long-term goal is. They seem to be getting more and more customers. And they have been, been quite efficient in lowering the cost per customer. But I'm a Monzo customer. I am definitely not worth 1,000 plus pounds from their previous valuation, which is the cost per, for each customer. I'm definitely not. So I'm kind of very curious as to what the long-term goal with that is. So long-term revenue model, it's got to be there. You can't just get as many people on as possible and try and, and, try and sell out. 
Yeah. Okay, well, this then comes back to something I have a real bee in my bonnet about. Uh, and in fact, I did a podcast with Callum Lang on private equity and VC, more about private equity. And private equity companies and VCs have a tendency to go for a land grab and get the maximum number of logos or maximum number of customers. And what that's done is it's created a culture where entrepreneurs keep asking the question, how do I get funding? Instead of asking the really important question, which is how do I build a long-term business that has the legs to survive? And net result of that is that you see lots of companies grow, crash and burn. And the failure rate is horrific, particularly in the tech space. So if people should be asking what's the long-term purpose for this business, you know, what's the long-term plan, uh, or they're not asking that, what do they expose themselves to in terms of risk? I'm going to sound slightly cynical. Arguably, not a lot. Because if the likes of, and again, this is all hypothetical, if the likes of Monzo, if the long-term goal is to sell Monzo to BBVA or RBS for, say, I don't know, Three billion or, or whatever, then that's uh, you know quids into the early the early VC investors in there. But if the long term goal is to build a sustainable business, then if that is not at the forefront of the executive team's mind, then you may end up with someone that is growing faster and faster and faster that doesn't have a solid exit or a solid uh, a, a solid a solid plan. Two examples just to kind of bring up here. Stripe is insane because it, Stripe is worth like three commerce banks now, wow. which is, yeah, I think it's worth three commerce banks now, but it's got a very, very clear, solid, ever-growing revenue stream. And the potential for growth is, is crazy. Revolut, love Revolut. It's worth what, 10, just shy of 10 billion now. I think it's almost pricing itself out of the market for an acquisition. And at the same time, I'm also thinking, where are these where are these unit economics? The guys there are super duper smart. So I'm kind of hoping that they have got they have got that planned. But I'm kind of think asking for myself if I was an investor, what is the long-term goal with this? Because you can't just otherwise you may end up with something that's a bit of a bit of a lame duck. What I see happen quite a lot is that when they get a investment, then the next thing the investors do is drive them into massive debt because that then allows them to mess with the valuation. So is that something that you'd foresee uh, in organizations like Revolut to, if yes. they do get acquired? Yes. Okay. I think I might have mentioned this to you before. I'd absolutely love to see, but I, I, I can't see I can't see happening. I would love to see a neobank let's say Starley or Monzo or N26 or whoever, go full John Lewis. And John Speed and Lewis, son of the original John Lewis, he was the sole owner of John Lewis. He effectively made the company public, but he owned all the shares. And the shares are then in a trust that pays out a dividend purely to, um, and the shares are automatically allocated a certain amount to each employee. And then when you leave, you automatically sell them. Very kind of out-of-the-box thinking. But I think, I know they're struggling at the moment, but just as a, as a culture, phenomenal. I would, I would love to see a neobank do that. 
I don't think we will. And it is very, uh, very optimistic, uh, very naive thinking. But my God, that'd be incredible. I would bank with that bank straight away just for that alone. They can have all my money. <laughs> very interesting idea. I've come across a venture capital firm called Indie.VC. And their logo is the flaming head of a unicorn. So now what they do is they invest in businesses with a view to make them sustainable long-term. And A VC? A VC. And the owners, uh, the founders, have first right to buy the shares back. So the people who make it successful actually get a reward from out of it as well. Because quite often what I've seen is a VC dilutes the shares, people don't really understand the term sheet, and they don't understand the difference between preferential and ordinary shares, and then they end up losing their share, and uh, they put three, four, five years in, and then get nothing or significantly less than they thought they would. So I think there are trends in the, or there are patterns in the market that are starting to emerge in the private equity and venture capital market, where there's a glimmer of hope. But it does feel to me like a woefully corrupt system, particularly the VC market, which seems to be populated by people who are making outrageous claims like they're going to give a 300% return on your investment. And what's interesting is most of the exits are now happening VC to private equity or private equity to private equity. They're not being acquired by uh, in a trade sale. Private equity company says... <laughs> I'll sell you my company because I need to pay out my investors. And in return, in two years' time, I'll buy two of your companies so you can do the same. And that seems to be a very corrupt and broken model. Well, how do you break a model like that, though? That's the... You have to be brave. And you have to start out with the right values. But again, I think one of the challenges there is that um, a lot of the people who think that they're the smartest person in the room probably aren't. They are a massive threat to the business. If you're going after that unicorn valuation and exit, chances are it's not going to happen. I think 0.03% of companies invested in become unicorns. So, I mean, who on earth would bet with a 99.97% likelihood of not achieving that valuation? But people do because they've won the PR battle. Okay, so tell me this. What, what are the other questions that people should ask but don't? How do I scale my culture? When you're starting out, you're in your garage or you're in like a small, you can throw a rubber at the CEO, at the founder. You, you, can, you can have the ear of everyone. And it, it's, it is very, communication channels are very open. You can speak with everyone like that. As you get more and more people, it becomes trickier and trickier to have that level of communication, to have those values. I've been um, been listening to the upstarts on Audible, quite, which is a, I love that, Uber, Airbnb and such. And Airbnb was quite slow at first in terms of growing because they were very much all about culture. And the CEO made a point of interviewing everyone himself and he had final say on everyone that comes on board. But then when you've got, you know, a thousand plus people, it becomes very tricky to actually do that. So the question, and I, I don't have the answer to this, but how do you scale culture? And if culture is broken, how do you try and bring that back around? 
Well, actually, there's some really cracking examples of this in tech. Splunk is yeah. a fabulous example. UiPath, OutSystems, Outreach, they're all doing that incredibly well. Gong, another one. You know, If you look at these companies, what they've been brilliant at, what they've been brilliant at is they've been able to define what their values are and recruit for their values. And in most cases, they've been successful at not recruiting people uh, who don't share their values. And recruitment is perceived as the number one job of managers. It's not something that's an interruption to their day job. It is their job. And I look at Phycotic. Their managers spend 25% of their time recruiting. And when you're growing at 80% a quarter, it's breakneck speed. The business that you're in on 1st of January is different to the 31st of March, to the 12th of September, and to the 18th of December. You've got four different businesses by that point. So these, you need to recruit people who are okay with change. They're comfortable being uncomfortable. They think about the customer. And again, this is one of the things that all of these businesses have in common. They put the customer front and center. Everything revolves around the customer and they understand that they are in business because of, not in spite of the customer. Training and coaching are mandated. Um, I was uh, interviewing Scott Lease, who's scaled five businesses to over 200 million. And in uh, his businesses, there's 60 hours of training offered every month to every employee. If you're having a problem and you're not performing, then the first thing he asks you is, okay, what training have you been on this month? And if you haven't been on training, there's a very good indication that maybe you need some help. And the training isn't just about sales. It's about managing personal finance. It's about marketing. It's about psychology. And you look at what Splunk did uh, in terms of their operating model. Tom Shodorf had a fabulous operating rhythm. And all on one page of A4, he had all of his personal responsibilities as the sales leader. And it looked at revenue, it looked at people in development, it looked at the customer, and all these different things that he had to do in order to filter that down through the organization. And that's where you build culture. Because culture teaches people what to do. Policy teaches them what not to do. And very often, and this is a huge tip, you've got to look at your policies and processes and see whether or not they've turned into habit. Because if they've become a habit, are they still relevant? And so again, you've got to kill your babies because the policies and procedures that you had when you first started out, if you had any, assuming you did, they're not necessarily going to be relevant when you're a 100-person company to a 1,000-person company to a 10,000-person company to a 100,000-person company. And if you're growing at that kind of scale, and UiPath, I think, has grown 100,000% in revenues in seven years. Gong, in the last two years, grew 12,000%. This year, my suspicion is they'll grow at least 500% on top of that 12,000%. Now, you know, when you're growing at that scale, you have to have a plan. You have to have a real clarity of vision of where you are headed, why you exist. And very often, that's missing. Because what they've done is they've created their shiny new widget, their piece of software or whatever it happens to be. And they think that's enough to build a business. It isn't. 
And again, what I also found with all of these really successful hypergrowth companies is they have humility built into their management. Their managers get coaching, their leaders get coaching, they bring in externals, they're not afraid to be challenged. They create a culture of constructive conflict and they have knockdown fights and they disagree and then they come to a decision and everyone backs it. And what they don't allow is that stovepiping and empire building to occur, which again, I think is absolutely the kiss of death for fast growth companies. What are your thoughts? I kind of want to take everything that you've said there and uh, put it on a spine quote of our, of our magazine because you absolutely hit the nail on the head. And um, yeah, God, I love that. Culture is about what you should be doing. Policy is about what you should not do. I completely agree with everything you said there, especially building an environment where you're not surrounded by yes people and you're being challenged constantly. And if, you ha- if you're not, then something's gone, gone completely wrong. One other thing to add to that is you need to be brave. One of the things Tom Shodorf did when he took over at Splunk is he let go their two highest performing salespeople because they were able but not willing. And that part of change is really important. If people are able to adapt but not willing to, then you need to get rid. And the, the rule is better no breath than bad breath. Better have a vacancy in an open territory than have the wrong person in it. And especially where you're now trying to align the entire customer journey. So from the moment they discover that you exist and your brand starts becoming part of their awareness, through lead generation, all of your content, every touch along the way, through the buyer life cycle, that needs to be planned for. There needs to be continuity and consistency. Because I think what I've seen happen time and again is where there is a handover, there is a problem. And uh, I would look to the city of Helsingborg in Sweden. I interviewed a fascinating gentleman called Patrick Lindqvist, and he is the chief innovation advisor for the city of Helsingborg. He's been given a quarter of a billion krona budget, so about $21 million, to turn the city into a center of innovation for Europe. and. One of the things that he's done, which I think is just a stroke of genius, is he has people whose job title is manager of the gap. Their job is to manage the gaps between the different stovepipes, the different departments, and to ensure that there's consistency and continuity and to prevent that stovepiping and that blame culture from entering their organization. And the things they've done around transport Primary education, elder care are just breathtaking. And with with a tiny budget, I mean, 21 million is nothing. And what they've been able to do is just breathtaking. So I'm really looking forward to going over to their expo uh, in 2022. Just can't wait to see what they've done. It's amazing. This has been absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much. Tell me, what are you struggling with at the moment? What are you wrestling with? Everything that you've literally just been talking about. You know, the, the biggest thing that I find is my, it all comes down to people, it all comes down to culture, but maintaining that. And I have these conversations where you go, do you know what? You've lit a fire in my belly there. I want to go and implement this. I want to go and implement that. But there's a big difference between having that fire in your belly and actually, 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 actually getting it done. 
I mean, my my biggest problem is being able to take that those thoughts, take being able to take those feelings, and be able to put that in a very um, numerical step one, step two, step three way to actually have a a deliberate action plan to take those thoughts of culture of innovation of get shit done, get shit done well, and be able to put that into well, you've got to write this out here. You've got to so it, it's the biggest thing I'm struggling with is again taking it and actually performing that action plan to execute. Okay, so... But I don't think I'm alone in that. I think there's a, lot, a fair few people as well, anyone that goes to a conference. Absolutely, and it's really common. So there's a process that I recommend to my clients. The first thing is you have to have clarity in terms of vision, mission, purpose, and then de- develop a plan in writing around that. Then look at the positions that you are likely to require in six months, a year, three years, five years down the road. And then look at the people that you've got and see, have they got the capability and the will to uh, move into those positions that you're going to need for the future? If they don't at the moment, is it a training issue or is it a capability issue? Is it a willingness issue? If they're not capable, then can they be moved into another role? within your business where they can still deliver value. Uh, If they can't, then ship them out and replace them. Then look at your processes because your processes will determine what people do consistently, repeatedly, scalably, and look at how you measure performance and make sure you're focused on performance metrics that allow you to uh, measure leading indicators, not the lagging indicators. Because so often people measure stuff that is fine for audit purposes, but doesn't help the business or sales move forward. And the other thing I would suggest is uh, Mike Michalowicz came up with a lovely, really simple model. So you uh, divide your page into four quadrants and you put do, decide, delegate, and design. And what I'm hearing from your response is there's a danger that you might get involved in doing too much doing rather than the design piece, which is where, as chief executive, uh, you should be spending your time. And push the decision-making down the chain of command by training and coaching your people, empowering them, and allowing them to fail, but not fail the business, and ensure that you delegate stuff that is non-core so you can focus on high-value activity. Does that make sense? 100%. And um, I mean, I'm going to be taking a lot of this on board and it, it's, it's one of those um, things that can be applied to any scale, any business, any industry. Any business, it doesn't make any difference because these are truths that impact or work in any environment. Now, tell me this, what are you reading, watching, listening to apart from Netflix? Or if you've got something really good on Netflix to add that you think other people should pay heed to if they're interested in the fintech space or growing mm-hmm. their Business. I would say uh, explained again on Netflix is uh, uh, phenomenal. I've been listening to a lot of again, a lot of a lot of audio books in lockdown, and uh, in our latest, we always do like a kind of a, a book review. And one of the ones that we've done recently is the uh, the Paytech book by Suzanne Christie, which is um, I say it's by Suzanne Christie. It's a it's a crowdfunded, a decentralized book about all things payments, and it, it's it's just terrific. If you ever want to know anything about payments, again. My background cinema. Love the uh, last Avengers film, and you know, spoiler alert when everyone comes through. 
that's what this book is like. It's got everyone who's who in payments coming through and giving their two cents around. This is why this part is interesting. I've been 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 looking at that a lot, but also I've uh, it's not on Netflix, but I have binged uh, Silicon Valley recently, which oh, is fabulous series. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, <laughs> but, anything that tricks you into learning. No, Silicon Valley is brilliant. There's a fabulous scene where they they think they're going in to speak to a bunch of investors, and they're just doing a, a pile of free consultancy, and it makes for a fabulous um, example of how engineers have a tendency to spill the beans and uh, how naive founders uh, or entrepreneurs will give away their IP uh, and end up being robbed blind. So yeah, no, genuinely fabulous series. Okay, so if you had a golden ticket and you could whisper in the idiot Ali's ear, age 23, what would you tell him? Uh, What choice bit of advice would you give him? I've got the context. I don't quite know how to put it into, into full-on words. So when I was uh, at uni, I made a lot of films, a lot of, a lot of stuff, and I was always told, um, do not put it on YouTube. And I was told that because of the old way of thinking that if you put something on YouTube, you can't get into film festivals, yada, 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 yada. So, I mean, in a nutshell, you've you got, you got to challenge conventional thinking and don't ever stop challenging conventional thinking. And when you think that you're not, you still need to challenge conventional thinking because I, I, I biggest regret is a lot of the stuff there that I didn't put on YouTube because as soon as I started doing it, it basically kickstarted my career. I couldn't agree more. I think, and you know, there, there's an old proverb: if you're green, you grow; if you're ripe, you rot. And too often, there are an awful lot of people out there who are rotten fruit. They think they're the finished article. This is the way it's always been done. On my office wall, I have a poster of um, from Despair.com, my third favorite website which is a picture of the Pamplona bull run with the headline tradition. Just because you've always done it that way doesn't mean it's not incredibly stupid. And you've got to challenge thinking. Keep asking yourself, well, what if What if I did the opposite? What if we stopped doing that? So that's fabulous. Okay, how can people get hold of you? I'm on pretty much every social media apart from TikTok. I'm relatively straightforward to, to find. LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, my email is literally anything at alipatterson.co.uk. And I have a catch-all, so uh, make sure I'm using every time uh, I speak to Amazon or whoever, or Lego, I tell them my uh, email is lego at alipatterson.co.uk. That way, if anyone tries to sell my data, I I know who you are. (laughs) Very good, Dave. Excellent. Ali, thank you so much. This has been really insightful and a massive education for me. Thank you. I'm right, right back uh, on, on, my, on myself as well. I've, I've, learned, I've learned more from this. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. So in the event that you found this a useful and interesting episode, please like, comment and share and please subscribe to the podcast. And if you'd like to get in touch with either me or Ali, then you can email me at marcuscauchy at me.com or M-C-A-U-C-H-I at Sandler.com. And also, if you think you'd be a good guest or you know someone who'd be a good guest, please connect us on LinkedIn or email both of us and uh, suggest that we speak because I'm looking for really interesting guests, outliers, people who challenge the status quo and people whose views may not be popular at the moment in business, in life, in psychology. So in the meantime... Stay safe. Happy selling. Bye-bye.